Welcome once again to Voice of Reason Radio. Your host, Chris Honholtz and Richard Story, joining you on November 6, 2021. And I can guarantee you right now that Alan Nelson has already got his tree up, his lights up, and there's not even a turkey in sight. Uh, <laughs> so but we are coming into the holiday season, and uh, it's already uh, getting festive, and, and so many Christians are having so much uh, fun in, in preparing for uh, the time of year when, we, when while we should do it every day, not just one day a year, and I agree with my, many of my brethren who say this, uh, we just, that time of remembrance and that time of Thanksgiving when we think about uh, the birth of our Savior. So we are looking forward to that, but I can guarantee you, Alan has already got Christmas music. It's been going on since March, I can promise you. He's been listening to Christmas music since March. So um, but we are just grateful to be with you. So grateful to be back. Thank you guys for allowing us uh, a week off last week uh, so my wife and I could s- celebrate our 20th anniversary. What a blessed time that was. Want to remind you that we are part of the Christian Podcast Community. You can just go uh, you know, Google Christian Podcast Community or go to podcast.strivingforeternity.org and you can always find an excellent selection of Christian podcasts that uh, will benefit you. And if you're someone who's into podcasts, there's actually podcasts about podcasting. See, I, we, we cover everything at the Christian Podcast Community. So you can actually get involved in listening to those programs and learn how to do this yourself. We encourage you not to do the way Rich and I do, because if I bump anything right now, this whole thing shuts down that fast. Um, <laughs> I've got a rat's nest. If you've looked on social media, yeah, I just posted it. We've got wires galore. And I'm afraid to touch it because if, if anything disconnects, this whole thing shuts down. So uh, we are grateful to be with you. We're grateful to have you on, guys on board with us each and every week. You are a great blessing to us. Just a wonderful opportunity. And we were talking about it before the show. So many of you have, you have joined on in the last year or so. And you haven't fled. The numbers keep showing consistency meaning that you guys came on board and you listened and you stayed. And that's only by God's grace and your kindness and mercy that we get to, to see that. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for being part of this. If you are a new listener, let me just explain what Voice of Reason Radio is. Why do we call it the Voice, Voice of Reason Radio? It is not because we are an atheist program who thinks the word reason is a magical incantation that makes religion disappear. Rather, the only true voice of reason is the Word of God, which coincidentally is our topic tonight, but we'll get into that. Um, We want you as Christians to trust in the word of God and funnel your life and practice through the lens of God's word. That is what we hope to do each and every week. We hope to encourage you, even if you disagree with everything we say, which is totally fine. uh, We want you to go to the word of God and examine it in context, reading it and understanding it. That is God's revealed word to you, and we want you to put that into practice. So that is why we are called Voice of Reason Radio. We are just two friends, Richard Story and myself, who are separated by two time zones. Uh, We are not learned scholars. We're not pastors. We're not teachers. We're just two Christians who love the Word of God uh, and love Jesus Christ, and we want to talk about that and encourage our brethren. And so each and every week, we always have two stated goals. The first is, of course, to honor the Lord in all that we do. If we don't glorify Him, then nothing we accomplish is worth anything because it's all, it makes it all about us, and that's not worth a, a plug nickel. So it's always got to be about glorifying our Lord Jesus Christ. And secondly is we hope that in some 
minor way we can come alongside you and encourage you and edify you as we talk about these various topics. So it is basically a an opportunity for you to sit in on a conversation between two Christian brethren. And I know some of you probably just shuddered over the word conversation because it's so misused these days, but it's a legitimate conversation where we just actually talk about the things of God, talk about how they apply to the world around us and how we live our daily lives. So Thank you for joining us. Thank you for being a part of this. If you have not, want to encourage you, go check out our website, slavetothekeng.com. That is where you will find everything connected to this program. Um, as far as I can tell, it's still up and running. I am not a webmaster. I'm glad everything works. Nothing has shut down. So <laughs> as far as I can tell, the plugins work, the email links work, and all the things that tell you where to find the program uh, how to stream it on the website and the uh, you know the sign up for e- you know uh, the emails where you can be a subscriber to the website. Everything works as far as I can tell. So <laughs> uh, you can also find the links to where you, if you are a fan of this show, and I kind of always hate to say it that way, but if you really like this show, uh, you can go through the link on that website to doctrineandlife.co. That's where you find the uh, the the t-shirts that we that they have made available for us. Uh, you can also go and sign up to be part of our Patreon uh, subscribers and help us continue to put this program on the air. That if that's if you're able to do so, great. That's always between you and the Lord. Just want to let you know it's there. Um, we know that some of you in some capacity have helped gift this program, and uh, obviously that's not something we're going to go you know name any names. But those those of you who have gifted to this program to make, uh, help us keep it on the air, we are so very very grateful for. Um, that is a, an amazing thing when anybody just simply wants to do that out of the kindness of their heart because um, that's that was your commitment to do that. That was not something we, we, that we try to push or ask for. We make it available so people can. And that's all we can ask you to do is consider it. If you want to, it's there. So we're so grateful to have you with us. So check out the website. Make sure you're subscribing. Make sure you're sharing this with your friends and family. Not that we think there's something super important that we're worth listening to, but we just want to be able to try to be a help to our fellow Christians as much as we are able to. So it's not about numbers. It's not about making ourselves uh, known all around the globe or anything like that. Simply just want to be a, a you know be able to help our brethren as much as we are able. So try to get that out of the way as quick as possible, because if I don't, I'm going to forget all of it. <laughs> and I never am really good at doing that. So I uh, just want to thank you for being with us. Rich, how you doing this week, brother? As always, brother, better than I deserve. I've been thinking, I guess it was while you were off last week, but it dawned to me, I think we're going to rename our show. Instead of Voice of Reason, I think we're going to start calling it the Voice of Resistance because we're commanded to resist the forces of darkness. And I think that in this day and age may be a better title (laughs) for what all of us needs to be doing is to be the Voice of Resistance. Amen. Amen. Of course, in this day and age... That's taken on a weird connotation too, with the, all the with all the hashtag stuff. So I'm not sure that we want to be lumped in with some of those crowds. But you may have a point there. We'll have to think about that, folks. Throw throw us an email, uh, voice of reason radio at gmail.com. See if you like Rich's idea for a name change. Um, I don't. That might well, confuse uh, people though. And, and besides, right now we've got merch, and I don't know the guys at Doctrine and Doctrine and <laughs> Life might not be happy if we change the name on them. <laughs> I'm thinking some black ops government 
organization would see Voice of Resistance <laughs> and would automatically be shut down, um, throwback to the French underground during World War II that <laughs> made their broadcast and, and coded messages and distracted the German forces as, as the underground worked to take back their country. Um, not that we're anywhere close or remotely engaging in or <laughs> actively calling for the overthrow of the government or anything else. It was NSA, if you're listening, that was really more of a joke than it was anything else. So <laughs> They've already got us on their hit list. You know that now. Just because you said that. Now they're like, oh, oh, he's clearly not joking. <laughs> well, you know, there there are times to where my wife will hear me and think that I'm talking to myself, but I'm actually just talking out loud just in case <laughs> one of the many microphones are picking up what's being said. And um, I'm not sure, but I'm sure Andrew Rappaport has a microphone planted here in my home as well as in yours. But um, <laughs> that's another story for another time. Although when, during your introduction and talking about the wires and cables, it just dawned on me. I wish there had been some way I could have planned it and had like an electric zapper <laughs> under your chair when you were talking about that. And I could have just remotely hit it and gave you a slight jolt as you, you were talking about your rat nest of cables. And that way we could all have heard you scream on air. Gee, thanks. I'm not being, I'm not being very nice tonight, <laughs> am I? No, no, this is not kind at all. You're trying to get us in trouble and you got, now you've just given Andrew ideas. So thanks a lot. <laughs> At least I didn't mention Elf. <laughs> do we, Do I need to stop this program and have a conversation <laughs> with you again? <laughs> well, I, you were just talking about things that I was talking about, so I just thought I'd just pile on. But that is definitely a subject we will not be addressing tonight. No, we don't have to um, do that because I'm, I'm sure Dr. White's already started that. So, <laughs> so please, let's move on to something else. And the sad thing is I had planned on being completely serious tonight and not getting, not allowing us to be sidetracked and joking around. But if you are a regular listener, you know that when Chris and I have not recorded in a couple of weeks, we tend to start off a little bit goofy, goofy. Yeah, that's a good word to put it. Good way to put it. A little bit goofy because I guess we'd have to try to get back in sync and get back in, into the habit and the, the groove of a serious conversation. And tonight was one of our longest pre-shows ever. And we really <laughs> didn't even talk about the show. We were on, we were, we were online about nearly two hours prior to even recording this, talking about almost pretty much any and everything you could imagine. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> over the course of the week, we have communicated quite a bit about tonight's episode and, um, when you sent the show idea to me, there was something in the way that you presented it to me that really just kind of stuck out in my mind. And I don't think we're really even actually addressing that mm -hmm. that much tonight. But <clears throat> since you had brought it up to me, I found something interesting. Um, you had mentioned biblical illiteracy mm -hmm. in this country, and I'm going to read something. And when I finish, I want you to tell me when this was written. And I know that you probably already know because I probably gave the answer to you <laughs> at some point. But try to pretend like you have no idea at all of, of what I've discussed earlier. <laughs> okay. okay. 
There is an amazing ignorance of Scripture among many, and a consequent want of established solid religion. In no other way can I account for the ease with which people are, like children, tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. There is an Athenian love of novelty abroad and a morbid distaste for anything old and regular, and in the beaten path of our forefathers, thousands will crowd to hear a new voice and a new doctrine without considering for a moment whether what they hear is true. There is an incessant craving after any teaching which is sensational and exciting and rousing to the feelings. There is an unhealthy appetite for a sort of spasmodic and hysterical Christianity. The religious life of many is little better than spiritual drama drinking and the meek and quiet spirit which Peter commands is clean forgotten. Crowds and crying in hot rooms and high-flown singing and an incessant rousing of the emotions. An incessant rousing of the emotions, that sounds familiar, <laughs> are the only things which many care for. Inability to distinguish differences in doctrine is spreading far and wide, and so long as the preacher is clever and earnest, hundreds seem to think it must be all right and call you dreadfully narrow and uncharitable if you hint that he is unsound. When would you say that this was written? Well, given the words like spasmodic, I'd almost want to say that sounds like Phil Johnson so very recently. <laughs> well, uh, there's some clues in there with some of the old language. Mm -hmm. But would you would you be shocked to learn that this was written and, and or either spoken, I'm not real sure whether this was from his book or from a sermon, but it's from J.C. Ryle, Holiness, Its Nature, Hindrances, Difficulty, and Roots, and I got this one from Christian Classics at Theral Library, but this was printed or spoken in 1889. Does that not sound like what we see and hear about going on in our world today over 130 years later? Yeah, it absolutely does. I, I, um, it's funny, I, I, J.C. Ryle you know, was just amazingly uh, gifted and knowledgeable man when it came to the scriptures. And I sat my boys down and we, we went through his short book, Thoughts for Young Men. Going through all of that, my boys were like, this is crazy how much this could be applied to today. And that's the amazing thing about, you know, the Word of God is that it is timeless. That it, it applies throughout the ages in any circumstance. And at, n not surprised at all. But at the same time, it should it shouldn't it should actually go catch cause us to catch our breath a little bit and go, my word, you know the 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 uh, Solomon. See, I'm starting to stutter. See, we didn't do this last week. Now I messed up. Solomon, when he said, "There's nothing new under the sun," he was not just being poetic. That this these issues are a generational battle. That when the, the Israelites were delivered from the hands of their enemies and then there was no king in Egypt. And what did they do? The very next generation did what was right in their own eyes. And here we are 130 years later, as you said, complete ignorance of the word of God, a complete chasing after the things of the world. Should it, should it surprise us? No, because we have the word of God pointing out to us. This is what happens when we don't build ourselves upon his word 
and we begin to take these things for granted and then begin to trust them less and do them less. And next thing we know, we're chasing after the things of the world all over again. So it doesn't surprise me. No, but should it catch our attention? Most certainly. Well, the thing that kind of jumped out at me, especially over the last several years is the emotion, emotional driven type preaching that we see and hear about. But here is JC Rowell talking about the exact same thing mm-hmm. in 1889. Exactly. You know, we tend, we, we tend to think that everything we see and experience and are trying to fight against and to defend the faith and all this is something new, but it's not. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, there's more of it today because there are more, there are more people today. And especially in America, more people proclaim to be a Christian, but yet still adhere to false doctrine and all these other worldly type emotions and some of these descriptions that J.C. Rowley used. You know, it's we tend to think, well, this is just something new that sprung up. But no, here he is, J.C. Rowley back in 1889 talking about and, you know, (laughs) decreeing and, and... you know, putting down and, and standing against that same type of unbiblical mm-hmm. ways of worship. But completely off subject, I just got to know, do you have any idea what he meant by a hot room? Not off the top of my head. <laughs> well, I, mean, I, I apologize. I meant to look it up because if I figured if I was curious, somebody else might be too. But anyway, <laughs> um, whatever a hot room was during 1889 and in, in, in reference to worship or religion, uh, one of us will have to look that up and and just see what he was talking about. But that kind of leads us really into tonight's topic, which is the inerrancy of Scripture and the infallibility of the Word of God, because that also, no matter what generation and decade, stays under attack from those of the world, does it not? Oh, absolutely. You know, every generation has had its attacks upon the revealed word of god in scripture and it it's it's always the same it, it really what it goes back to is the very first question in the garden of eden when satan says to eve has god really said it always boils back down to that has god really said and if we don't study the Word of God, if we don't recognize it for what it is, we are most definitely, most definitely looking at the people of this generation and the next generation and the next generation following in the path of Satan, questioning the very revealed Word of God. And it's interesting. I mean, you sent me a a fantastic sermon um, from Charles Spurgeon and it's it's a lengthy one and it that you uh, it that you guys can read on the Spurgeon Center website we'll put this in the show notes talking about the infallibility of scripture and, and the various things that uh, points that he makes about the you know the mouth of the Lord hath spoke it referring to Isaiah 120 and he he makes five different points he says that it is our warrant for teaching scriptural truth that it is um bear with me it's a long one. I have to scroll. Um, that it is the claim of God's word upon your attention. So it's it what drives us to to speak and preach. It is demands your attention. 
that it is that it is uh, it gives to God's word a very special character. There's something unique and special about it because the Lord hath spoke it. That it makes God's word a ground of great alarm to many. That it it should cause us to fear the wrath and judgment of God. That He will fulfill His promise to bring judgment, and that. It makes uh, the word of the Lord the, the reason and rest of our faith that he will deliver upon his promise for those that he, he has uh, redeemed. It, it's such an amazing sermon. And, and, we'll, and there's a, some of the quotes in here I, 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 we're going to go through tonight. I think they were fantastic. But the very fact that God's word itself speaks of these things. I mean, go to the book of Jude. The whole point that Jude is making is, looks, I wanted to write about you know, our common salvation, but I have to talk about these false teachers who are seeking to corrupt his word. That, you know, you have in scripture itself that, you know, one of the first you know, passages we ever talked about on this program, first, first, excuse me, second Timothy three, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by who? God. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equi or, excuse me, equipped for every good work. Every attack upon the word of God is an attack upon this very revelation right here. Anytime that you say the Bible is not enough, that it doesn't address this issue, it doesn't talk about that issue, that there's errors, or that it's prone to error because human uh, there was human authors. It's an attack on this very passage that Scripture is divinely inspired, and every word contained in it, every jot, every tittle, as Christ would say, all of it is divinely inspired. God superintended every single word of it. And so using the actual persons and their personalities and their writing styles without ever like putting them into some sort of trance-like writing, but using exactly who they were who, with what they wrote on paper, he superintended that to be written. And everything about it is divinely inspired because it is the Holy Spirit in who indwelt them and empowered them and caused them to write these things. So when you attack... Brother, yeah, go ahead. Well, you can finish your thought. I was just going to ask you, just in case mm -hmm. there was someone listening that may not completely understand or maybe they're newly saved, if you would explain what we mean by the Bible is infallible, and that Scripture is inerrant. Well, basically, it, when we say that it is inerrant, it is, we're saying it is in, it is without error. All right, that because it is the Word of God, it is without error. It contains no errors, and that it is infallible. In other words, it it is not even capable of error. Okay, the the Bible cannot, you know, the Word of God cannot fail. It cannot have error. And therefore it is inerrant, so it does not have error. And so that's a, that's a sticking point for a lot of people. There was another article you sent me that was, oh my goodness, written back in 2019 
uh, by something called the spec or called Spectrum, and uh, the author of this, Matthew Quarty, Quart- Quart- Q-U-A-R-T-E-Y. So I don't know if I said his name right. I apologize if I messed it up. Messed it up. Um, but it is a strong. It is. I told Rich that in this article. It is loaded with so many straw man attacks, it's literally a fire hazard. Be careful if you read this article. Your computer might combust. Um, but it starts with the presupposition that, you know, they actually say it in here. Where is it? Um, bah, 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 bah. It says, the only possible way in which the Bible could be free of error is if God verbally inspired the writers. But this is a position we have consistently rejected. So they start with that as a presupposition. And I honestly believe that that is what we are seeing every time there is a work, uh, an attack on the word of God is an intentional rejection of the inspiration of God's word, of God upon the writers. Go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to let the readers know or listeners know that this article encompasses pretty much about every type of argument Mm -hmm. you will ever come across when it, when people say that the Bible is full of mistakes or that, you know, it's not actually the Word of God. This this article was a good summation of mm-hmm. all the different arguments in, in those regards, and I just kind of wanted to let the listeners know that in the event they do decide to read it. But go ahead and finish your train of thought, and I apologize yeah. no, for no, jumping no. in there. No, no, by all means, man. This is how our conversations work. We talk. Um, so, anyway, the, it's a very attack on the inspiration of the Word of God that God could not have meant for that to be read, written in. And if that's the case, if God didn't intend for that to be written in, if that was not inspired, first off, I'd like to know how any of us can know the mind of God outside of his revealed word. I, when, when people like Matthew Corti say, oh, we reject the, 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 divi- the verbal divine inspiration of the word of God, how do you now decide what's of God and what's not? You can only determine this by your own fallible mind, which he goes into great detail, what he would call detail, what I would call massively lightweight straw man arguments, of how man is fallible. So if man is fallible and you reject divine inspiration, how do you determine whether it's true or not? How do you determine whether that's right or not? It goes back to preference. And there are We'll put the link to this in the article because you maybe you feel like giving yourself a migraine. I'll, you know, we'll just say that. But if it's not divinely inspired and therefore not inerrant and not infallible and not therefore not at all sufficient, then it can't be used for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. It certainly can't make you complete. And it can't equip you for every good work. Well, that's what all of this boils down to man does not want to use the word of God for being equipped and complete. Man wants to use his own fallible wisdom, his foolishness, according to scripture. And so therefore man is going to go back to the very argument of Satan and say, well, did God really say that? I mean, no, no, God didn't say that. This is not what was meant. And so that's what we, we see a, an issue with, is that it is an assault upon the very truth of God so that man may supplant his own word. Yet, 
God said to Isaiah in, in, in chapter 55, 11, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish it, accomplish that which I purpose, and it and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God reveals through his prophet that his word, he sends it out for a specific purpose, and it will not fail. It will accomplish exactly that. So, for example, when we preach the gospel, for those of you who are thinking, well, evangelism has to be about numbers and results, God's gospel goes out and it can do one of a couple things. It can go out and redeem the lost, or it can heap judgment upon the people who reject it. Do you think God is, gee, how did that how did they not accept it? Man, I just that's not what I wanted to happen. No, his word goes out, and those who reject it are rejecting it because that is the intent of God, and they will be judged for their rejection. It goes out and accomplishes exactly what it's sent out to do. Hebrews tells us that the word of chapter 4, verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word cuts to the finest point and exposes our hearts for what they are. Idol factories full of sin, rebellion, hatred, every vile thing. When Christ says, hey, you've heard it said that if you cheat on your wife, you're committing adultery. No, I tell you, if you even look with lust, his word cuts to the heart. It is the thoughts and intents of the heart that reveals who we are. His word cuts down to the finest point, exposing us for what we are. And he uses that to accomplish his goals. And it for, the, uh, for those not in Christ, it exposes you and calls you to repentance. For those in Christ, it, br- it brings you further into repentance, further into the, the growth and edification and building up of the Christian so that you're more like Christ, so that you're going and doing the work that he's equipped you to do. Rich, when we have, as you said, you know, through J.C. Ryle 130 years ago, we have a church, a professing church, who is going out denying the sufficiency of Scripture. And we've talked about it on the show before. There, there are those who would deeply deny Scripture, like reject it, like from this article from Spectrum, reject it wholeheartedly as far as its infallibility, inerrancy, and sufficiency. And there are those who by practice which is what kind of what we're seeing going on right these days in the SBC, for example, by practice reject its sufficiency. Or the, these churches that are embracing things like critical race theory, intersectionality, etc. By the way, just, just as an aside, if you think that the, an election in Virginia, and I saw people who said this, not most Christian friends, but I've seen it. Oh, well, critical race theory is now over because of one election. Y'all need to pay attention. <laughs> to, to paraphrase Samuel Say off of Twitter, CRT's had a 30-year head start. There's a lot of work to go. <laughs> Don't get too excited yet, folks. Um, backtrack, getting back on track. We've got churches that, the so-called churches, such as, you know, 
where the the church uh, that Matthew Cortive would come from, that by intent reject the word of God as divinely inspired, sufficient, inerrant. And by practice, such as those in the SBC and other churches that are taking on worldly ideologies, who say, well, the Bible doesn't address this and doesn't tell us how to do that. And yet, Paul writing to Timothy says, the word of God is divinely inspired. It's his superintended goal for every word there to be written. And it's for your teaching, your reproof, your correction and training in righteousness. Rich, the idea that we can't look to the word of God and discern what God would have for our lives, especially when we can look throughout history, just as we see with J.C. Ryle, and go, wow, the churches over a century ago were doing this. Go back to this article from, uh, well, not article, but the sermon from Charles Spurgeon, who addresses the inerrancy of Scripture. Brother. Over and over again, we, we, we just see this over and over again, how much the Word of God speaks to every age. Go ahead. Before we get back to Charles Spurgeon's mm-hmm. sermon, um, kind of briefly commenting on what you said, and that's the sad point, is we we expect the world to attack Bible the Bible and the Word of God and Christ, but when it's those from within the church that attack the infallibility of God, that's really what becomes sad, that they're rejecting the word of the God they claim to follow. And, you know, they're, they are attacking God's nature and actually trying to put God's word on trial and the infallible infallibility of his word. They're basically elevating themselves to a God-like level when they think they know better than the creator of all things. Mm-hmm. If a, and, and, you know, if a person doubts the Bible, then how can they have assurance of anything, much less their own salvation? You know, just think about that. If they're doubting the Word of God, they doubt that this is the Word of God, how can they be assured of their own salvation, and how can they be assured of anything? Because either all the Bible is the Word of God, or none of it is. As, As fallen humans, we cannot pick and choose what is and what is not the Word of God. We're not omniscient, omnipotent, or any of the characteristics of God. We don't know. We can't know. And that's kind of part of what the purpose of faith is. And once we are actually saved in Christ and indwelt with the Holy Spirit and carry along and and walk in the Holy Spirit, we begin to know and understand that what God speaks is true. And because at some point or another, we're actually a witness to the miracles of God's Word because we've experienced it ourselves in our own lives. Not that being a Christian is based on experience, but we're witnesses to what Christ can do because we know who we were mm-hmm. in dead in our flesh and dead in our sin prior to Christ reaching down and saving us. And all of these that these men and women that doubt the Bible's true and, and question, like you said, did God really say and try to justify their own sin and their own desires while claiming to cling to Christ, you know, Christ actually spoke about them in Romans 1, going down into verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That comment about resembling mortal man is not just in creating a physical statue, but also creating a false Christ in their own minds that they're comfortable with, that not only are they comfortable with, but a false Christ that is comfortable with the sin that they love. And I kind of backtrack a little bit, but if the Bible is infallible, and I apologize, I did not cite the source that I got this, but this next portion, I think, well, I'll have to backtrack and see if I can find the article I pulled it from. Anyway, it says, if the Bible is fallible, we Christians have nothing which to base our beliefs. Mm -hmm. We can only know God's character, his plan, or his desires for us and the kingdom through his revelation to us, the Bible. We are incapable of knowing him by our own effort. We don't possess the innate ability to discern truth from error regarding God, and if the Bible is mixed with said truth and error, it would be impossible to distinguish what's true and what's false. Mm -hmm. Imagine watching a person from a distance and trying to know them personally. You can make endless speculations about their behaviors, but there would be no reason to think you know them. Only as they get closer and reveal themselves to you can you know who they are. If this is true of people, how much more of God? The thing is, when people of the world and false Christians claim that the Bible is in error, of course they claim it's in error, because the veil of darkness and the veil of sin is still across their face. They can't know and understand the things of God and Christ, because they don't know Christ. And more importantly, they are not known by Christ, mm -hmm. as Paul pointed out, and as Christ himself pointed out in Matthew, I think, chapter 7, when he says, depart from me, I never knew you. That word knew, and when Paul references the word know, it's not an intellectual, you know, well, I know Chris, he's a good friend of mine, or I know Bill over here, we're friends on Facebook. It's not that type of know. It refers to a very deeply intimate type of know that's referenced back when Adam and Eve, Adam knew Eve, or in reference to where it said Joseph took Mary as his wife, but he did not know her. Those words all mean that very deep, intimate connection or that very intimate knowledge of one another. Christ knows you in a sense that he knows who's saved and who's not saved. He knows what's going to happen, you know, at the end of time or whatever way you want to try to describe it. Christ knows who's going to be with him in eternity. It's not like he's just wandering around lost, wondering, well, who is this and who is that? Oh, this person decided to follow me, so, okay, all right, I'll take him. All right, who's this next one over here? No, Christ knows everything from the beginning to the end of time. That's part of his omnipresence. He's present at all points in times throughout all of history, throughout all of eternity, and but we fail to realize, especially in this day and age, when we read that passage, 
Mm-hmm. People seem to think that we're, you know, Christ is sitting around waiting on us to choose him. And just because we claim to follow Christ, we claim to know Christ, that automatically we're saved. But no, that's not the case. Christ has to be indwelt in you. The Holy Spirit has to possess you to truly be a child of Christ. Anyone outside of that cannot understand the things of Christ. They may be able to read a passage and say, okay, I see this is talking about this point in time or it's referencing that, but they cannot deeply comprehend the things of Christ because it takes Christ reaching in and opening our hearts and allowing us to understand just like he did with Lydia in the book of Acts with Paul and Barnabas. It requires Christ to open our hearts to allow us to understand. That's the reason so many people try to say, well, the Bible's full of errors or the Bible's not the Word of God or, well, Christ doesn't mind if I do this, this, or this. In their minds, they're right because they don't want the Christ of the Bible. They want the Christ they've created in their own mind, and I hope I haven't rambled and got (laughs) anyone confused at this point. No, I think you've spoken quite clearly, brother. I think one of the things that we need to remember, you said uh, very rightly, we, we should expect the world, the world, to attack the Scriptures because they are outside of Christ. You know, a, a part, an unsafe person can read the Bible and understand it. It was, I believe, it was attributed to uh, Mark Twain, who said that it's not the bar- parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bothers me; it's the parts that I do. So, the Bible, in and of itself, convicts the human heart. It exposes us for what we are, and it points us to the only hope of salvation. It is God's Holy Spirit, as you rightly pointed out that regenerates us and brings us into redemption to where we profess uh, you know, uh, repentance and faith and makes us a new creation. And now, with the, the illumination of the Holy Spirit, the Scriptures come alive in a way that we, can know, we could never have understood apart from His regenerating work and His indwelling. There's no question about it. But w- when we talk about this, we want to make sure we're not giving you an apologetic so that you can go out and, do, and go, here's how you, unbeliever, can know this is the Word of God. Because even when they recognize it as such, they reject it. Just as you were talking about, Rich, in pre-show, Christ was known to be the Messiah. There was no question in the minds of the religious leaders of the day. That's why they were the ones who could are the only ones, I believe, that can actually have committed the unforgivable sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because they attributed the works that were clearly of God to Satan. They knew what it was. They, they knew who he was. Okay? So you can have unregenerate people who recognize the truth of what you're saying and still utterly reject it. This is not about an apologetic to convince someone that the Word of God is probably the Word of God. Rather, it is for us as Christians when other professing Christians come to us and say, well, you, you can't just go by that. Or, well, you really need this. Or you get the arguments from people like uh, Matthew Cordy, who says in the beginning of his article, I'm not kidding, this is at the beginning, Of course the Bible contains errors big and small because its writers were human. Sometimes the errors were innocent. Other times they were contrived, purposeful, and made to fulfill an agenda. Interesting. 
I'd like to know how he knows that. Uh, you don't know, you, you can't go back in time and interview them. You don't believe it's divinely inspired. You can only assume, yet he says this with an absolute certainty going on. Anything that involves humans comes with a taint. And that includes products resulting from God's use of human agents to reveal himself. Humans often hijack and distort God's message. That's how God in the Bible is made to promote genocide, regulate slavery, and ban women from church leadership. Ah, now we know where his problems are. He doesn't like what God actually has to say about these things. These are his issues, and he doesn't like what God actually says with regard to them. Getting back to the quote. Uh, but G as Jesus' ethic reveals, genocide, slavery, and a host of other ungodly behaviors are inconsistent with God's character. A good God does not endorse evil in one era and disavow it in another. And if this God promotes immorality, that's a bridge too far. Now, Rich, I find this entirely interesting. When we see something like this, this is someone who's essentially a professing Christian because he uses this article later. He kind of creates this paper mache club and then he proceeds to <laughs> to try to use it to beat up on decisions that were made by people that supposedly were using inf er uh, inerrancy and infallibility to make decisions within this particular denomination that were if I understand the article correctly they were bad by this uh, you know by this standard and so therefore because these individuals I would probably argue didn't use inerrancy and infallibility the way the Bible reveals them, but rather claimed inerrancy and infallibility of their particular issue. He uses that as to say, well, see, they did something bad under the guise of this. Therefore, that idea is bad. Um, that's a paper mache club. You hit me with it. It's just going to fall apart. It's worthless. It's useless. It's, it's reveals more about what you believe about God and about his word than it actually does to damage anything about the the actual doctrine of inerrancy, infallibility, inspiration, and sufficiency. So here's what we see. We see someone who's a professing Christian who attacks it by saying, well, God's word, do God's word doesn't actually say this. God used people and people said this. But here's what I find interesting. Going back to that that sermon from, I'm going to read two quotes that I, 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 well, three, technically the last one's real short from Spurgeon that I thought were just super fantastic. I, I can't fit, think of a better way to describe it and actually demolish Matthew Cordy. He, he says in his sermon, we never find an apostle raising a question about the degree of inspiration in this book or in this book or that. In other words, no apostle ever looks at the entirety of scripture and goes, I don't know if that's inspired. No disciple of Jesus questions the authority of the books of Moses or the prophets. If you want uh, to cavil or suspect, you find no sympathy in the teaching of Jesus or any one of his apostles. That's the first quote. So Spurgeon rightly points out where Cordy would say, oh, well, obviously, if men wrote it, there's, there's agendas involved and, and sinfulness. Yet the apostles, the very people that Christ used to establish the church, Raise no question about any book of the Bible. Not a single page of it. You'll find no sympathy for that in anything that Jesus taught or by any of the things that the apostles ever said or wrote. He goes on to say, The New Testament writers sit reverently before the Old Testament and receive God's word as such. 
as in other words, it is received as God's word without any question whatever. You and I belong to a school which will continue to do the same. Let others adopt whatever behavior they please. As for, as for us and for our house, this priceless book shall remain the standard for our faith and the ground of our hope so long as we live. In other words, the apostles sat reverently at the feet of the scriptures. With no question, this was God's word. These were the men who walked with Christ who were taught by Christ. Matthew Cordy would have you believe, well, well, Jesus, I mean, look at his ethic. It's totally different from the Old Testament. It's totally different from that, that mean, nasty God. Yet, the writers of the New Testament, the apostles themselves, sat at the feet of the Old Testament and never once raised such a question. They, hey, brother. Go ahead. I was just wanted to add something else from Spurgeon that really addresses today's culture and pertains to that article. In, in this sermon, Spurgeon went on to say, one said to his minister, my dear sir, surely you ought to adjust your beliefs to the progress of science. Yes, said he, but I have not had time to do it today, for I have not yet read the morning papers. One would have need to read the morning papers and take in every new edition to know whereabout scientific theology now stands, for it is always chopping and changing. The only thing that is certain about the false science of this age is that it will be soon dis disproved. Theories founded today will be scouted tomorrow. The great scientists live by killing those who went before them. They know nothing for certain except that their predecessors were wrong. Even in one short life, we have seen system after system, the mushrooms, or rather the toadstools of thought, rise and perish. We cannot adapt our religious belief to that which is more changeful than the moon. Try it who will, as for me, if the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it, it is true to me in this year of grace, 1888, and if I stand amongst you a gray-headed gray old man somewhere in 1908, you will find me making no advance upon the divine ultimatum. Ultimatum. I'm sorry, my tongue is not working, but... <laughs> Not only does it apply to science, and we know that since in the time since Spurgeon said those words in 1888, and now we're in 2021, how many scientific theories have been proven mm -hmm. wrong? How many times has science de decided, okay, we were wrong about this, but we're right about this now? How many people today try to say that science is absolute truth, but the Bible is full of errors, mm -hmm. but the Bible has never changed, will not change, and will never change, but science and the philosophies and sociologies of the day change from one generation to the next, but yet the Bible has never, ever changed, because God never changes. He is the same yesterday, mm -hmm. today, and tomorrow, and he will stay that way. Even, where, even when, in this article, he was trying to is so many, and I've heard this quite a few times over the years, that, well, Jesus Christ is the God of the, of the New Testament, but God of the Old Testament, they're completely different. People don't understand that it's one God, Father, mm -hmm. Son, and the Holy Spirit, that Jesus Christ was with the Father at the beginning, and he is there at the end of all time. They do not and cannot understand that God is unchanging, and 
so many people that do not understand the Bible do look at it and say, well, this is the God of the Old Testament, but Christ is the God of the New Testament, not understanding that they are one and the same. Yeah. And that's that lies at the heart of a lot of them's problem because they're trying to put their morality and export it into the Bible and make the Bible mean what they want it to mean. That gentleman that wrote this article is making absolute moral statements without trying to use the only basis for absolute morality. He's trying to say that the Bible cannot be moral because it did this, this, and this, but he's basing biblical morality on his view of the world and culture and things around him. He's trying to make the Bible shape his beliefs instead of instead of asking Christ to make the Bible shape his own beliefs, if that makes sense. No, it absolutely does. And this is the thing that I always find rather interesting. People who say, well, the God of the Old Testament is, is different from, from Jesus, and Jesus is, is that's, that's kind of the, the, the true depiction of God. And it's the Old Testament that's got it backwards. I always find it interesting. How is it that if the Word of God is, contains errors, and it's, it, it's not infallible, it's not divinely inspired, it's not sufficient... How is it you can trust that the revelation of Jesus is the right view of God and the Old Testament is not? Let me just, and it's exactly what he does in this article. Here's, here's the paragraph that I, I saw this in. He says, It is unwise to equate Scripture with God. The different depictions of God in Scripture do not at all add up to a full picture of God. Again, I'd like to know where he gets this idea from. How do you add up the full picture if you don't have his revelation? The simple reason is that the vessels conveying these images and impressions are flawed. At times, some of the things that these writers make make God say or do are immoral. Oh, make God say or do. Interesting. It is difficult to square with the God Jesus reveals to us with the one that demands that the Sabbath breakers should be stoned to death or that Uzzah, who acts on instinct, not instinct. I really like what R.C. Sproul said. Uzzah had the arrogance to believe his hand was less dirty than the ground. Um, who acts on instinct to prevent the Lord's ark from falling should die. Jesus said of God, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If I love this. If we like Jesus' characterization of God, chances are we recoil from some of the conceptions that uh, we had of God in the Old Testament. But if Jesus and his Father are one, then the erroneous portrayal of God, which Jesus came to modify, wow, is not a true depiction of God, leading to the suspicion that the canon contains inaccurate information about God. I'm going to go back to my question. If God's word is not trustworthy, if it is without, if it is contains errors, if it is fallible, how do you know which portrayal is correct? You it can't. Also goes <laughs> it also goes and applies to the false doctrine that's been taught for a hundred years that whether you want to say the word God or Christ is all love, is all forgiving, mm -hmm. without examining and understanding the rest of his attributes, you're making an idol out of one of God's attributes and, and elevating it mm -hmm. above the rest of his attributes where they're all are equal. And that's exactly because it. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, because God shows no partiality. There's no partiality in his character. Yes, he is forgiving, but yes, he is also filled with wrath and judgment upon those who deny and, and reject and resist him. I mean, you look through the Old Testament, 
Pharaoh resisted God, and God told, spoke through Moses and told Pharaoh exactly what was going to happen. And when Pharaoh resisted, it happened. Yeah. When God warned time and time and time again in the Old Testament to the to the Hebrews and sent prophets, every time the Hebrews stoned the prophets, rejected the word of God, and because of that, they were disciplined and punished under the wrath of God because they were disobeyed, mm-hmm. disobeying him just like a child disobeys a parent today because the Bible says God will discipline those whom he loves. Mm-hmm. He loved Israel. He loved them because they were his chosen people, but because they would reject him and disobey him, he would discipline them. Yep. And when we get to Christ, it's more like at this point in time, we're looking at a young adult when we come to the nation of Israel and even the Gentiles, because at that point, Christ said that he was the fulfillment of all the prophets, mm-hmm. that he came. Even Paul proclaimed that times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent and to believe in the gospel, meaning that God has now written on your heart his law, that you know right from wrong, you know his word is right, but because of your sin and unrighteousness, you reject what you know to be true and resist his word because you love your sin more than you love his righteousness, more than you love Christ. Christ was not all loving this hippy-dippy, you know, throwing flowers and rainbows that's been portrayed for the last 50 or 60 years. Christ spoke about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. It may not have been in direct relation, but he referenced hell, you know, cast into the fire, the um, gnashing and grinding of teeth, all these different references. If Christ was not being objectionable to those around him, why did they reject him and his own people have him nailed to a cross? Mm-hmm. If Christ was all this loving, happy rainbows and all forgiveness and everything else, there would have been no need for the Sanhedrin to have ordered and wanting him put to death. But he stood between them and their love for power and money and status among the Roman Empire. He was proclaiming the God of the Bible. He was proclaiming the Word of God because he was the living Word of God. They, they then rejected him just like they had in the Old Testament, and they wanted him gone. They wanted him crucified. They wanted him dead. They wanted him shut up, gone away, so they could go back to living their lives of luxury. And we still see it today. People prefer money and power and their status over what God truly says because they don't want to abandon their sin and cling to Christ because, simply put, they don't like what Christ has to say because it makes them come face to face with their own sin and their own guilt, which they don't want to admit. Amen. Amen. And this is what you're dealing with here when you have an objection like Mr. Cordy has raised here. You've got a Jesus that he's created in his own mind. By the way, when you create a version of God in your own mind, that's called an idol. He's worshiping an idol. It's an idol of his own design. An idol that says, this is the ethic of Jesus. He wants all this. Which is, when you look at Scripture as a whole, you see the full revelation of God's nature, including the mean, wrathful, not nice God that he says Jesus corrects. 
See, Jesus is the one who says that on the day that he comes in judgment, there will be people who say, didn't I do this? And didn't I do that in your name? And what is he going to say? Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. He's talking about sending these people, as you said, Rich, to hell. Christ is a God of judgment as much as he is a God of grace. So the One thing real quick. Yeah, go ahead. It, some uh, Bible versions, instead of iniquity, it uses the word lawlessness. Yeah. John defines lawlessness, and I think it's in First John. He defines lawlessness as sin. Mm -hmm. And what Christ is saying, depart from me, you who love your sin, you who practice sin, mm -hmm. depart from me. Amen. And so this idea that you don't have, that Jesus is, uh, he's this nice guy. He's this loving guy. He, he's the one that he wants to elevate people. He wants to, uh, he's not the, he's not the God that would, would, would strike down Uzzah for touching the ark. Yeah, he is. He very much is. Because he is also the one that says that having a hateful heart of uh, towards someone you will be met with the same judgment as if you are a murderer not that murder is equal to hating someone but rather a heart that hates that will not forgive that wants some wants evil to befall someone will meet with judgment and condemnation in hell as much as a person who goes to the extra mile and commits murder. Will their, will their judgments differ in some way? Yes, I believe just as much as there are rewards in heaven for those who have been faithful, there are going to be greater judgments for those in hell because Christ kind of makes it clear there's greater condemnation, for example, false teachers. So there's greater condemnation the worse your sin gets. But Hatred is sufficient. He makes it so precise when it comes to the law. Uzzah, in defiance of the word of God, as R.C. Sproul put it, thinking his hands were cleaner than the ground, the dirty ground, sought to touch the ark as if he had clean enough hands to touch the seat of God. He struck dead. Christ says, you'll go to hell just for unjust anger. It's the same God. So when you have someone like Matthew Cordy saying, oh, this, these are different versions of God. So clearly this is a, th these, these are errant. This is a false, th th this is, this is a false depiction. Except that he can't even argue that the depiction that he thinks is in the New Testament is something we can trust because it's based upon errant views. Well, I, I want to address the issue of errant views. 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and, glo uh, and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the, uh, 
majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for for we were with him on the holy mountain. So stop for a second. Peter is an eyewitness to the transfiguration of Christ. He sees Christ glorified. Right? He's an eyewitness to this. He says, we're not just making this up. We didn't take somebody else's story. We saw it. But then what does he go on to say? And we have the prophetic word, what? More fully confirmed. The prophetic word has more weight than seeing the direct, seeing that direct glorification of Christ. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Does he say, rely upon this vision that I saw? No, he says, you have the word. It is a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all. Okay, the eyewitness to Christ in the transfiguration, his glorification on the Mount of Transfiguration. He is a witness to this. What is he saying? What is he pointing us to? What does Matthew Cordy need to read? Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, this means the foretelling and the foretelling, no prophecy of Scripture comes from what? Someone's own interpretation. It doesn't come from anybody's own personal perspective. For no prophecy, none, was ever produced by what? The will of man. It's not our own interpretation. It was, excuse me, he, what he is saying is the writers of Scripture didn't come from their own interpretation. It didn't come by their own will. But what? But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What Matthew Cordy, now, and, uh, well, just one sec. What Matthew Cordy and so many others refuse, and he says it in this article, they refuse, they absolutely refuse. He says it. Uh, right up toward the beginning, you know, I think I read this earlier, you know, the only possible way in which the Bible could be error-free is if God verbally inspired the writers, but this is a position we have consistently rejected. When someone says the Bible's full of errors, and they're saying it as if they have knowledge, I mean, not like somebody who's new to Christianity and doesn't understand, but someone like this who says it's full of errors, they are rejecting this right here, the eyewitness of Christ and his glorification, saying that it is the Holy Spirit that brings Scripture, that brings interpretation, that brings prophecy in the prophetic word. It is the Holy Spirit. And this why is why, Rich, that they hate the Word of God. And this is why, as Christians, we must absolutely devour the Word of God because it is direct revelation from the Holy Spirit. Sorry, I, I cut you off there. That's okay. But in the first part of that passage, when Peter talks about we have the prophetic word more mm -hmm. soundly, most commentary commentators agree that he's talking about the Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. that as truly saved in Christ, we possess the same Holy Spirit that the prophets were spoken that spoke to the prophets and wrote through the prophets. Mm -hmm. And when someone like this writer of this article is denying what Scripture says, he's not calling Peter a liar. He's not calling Paul a liar. He's not calling any of the writers in the New Testament liars. He's calling God himself 
mm-hmm. a liar, which Amen. it is impossible for God to lie. And who are we, and the Bible says, who are we to speak back to the Lord? Who are we to question God's will? Who are we to question what God does? Paul talks about that. I think it's in the book of Romans. Who are you to talk back to God? When Paul was addressing, you know, the the potter and the clay and that God makes some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use and to exhibit his divine majesty that he creates some vessels for objects of wrath. And I'm bad paraphrasing this <laughs> because I had not planned on doing that. And my I have my memorization of scripture is lacking, but thankfully the Lord will bring portions back to my mind, even if I'm paraphrasing. But ultimately what it comes down to is they are calling God a liar when they deny the infallibility of scripture and they deny verses such as that, that you just read. And for those of you that say, well, I I believe the Bible, but I doubt Paul, guess what? Peter acknowledged the writings Mm -hmm. of Paul as part of scripture because he said that they twist and malign the words of Paul like they do the rest of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Amen. People seem to overlook these little things, and ultimately what it comes down to, if you're in a discussion with someone that denies anything in the Bible, or they twist Scripture to their own prideful means, or they try to reword Scripture to suit their own, their own wants and needs, you just need to remember that you would do far better proclaiming the way of salvation to that person than spending an hour arguing because you can explain it to someone until you're blue in the face, but unless Christ opens their heart and allows them to understand, they will remain dead in their sin because that veil will remain over their face. Yep. Amen. Amen. And that's really, I mean, that's kind of what the whole point of this this episode is about it is reminding us that it is God's word is the power unto salvation. Okay? It is his word that reveals our most desperate need. It is his word that reveals the the path of salvation. You know, how will they know unless they hear, right? How are they hearing? From the word of God. It is that which brings about salvation, but also brings about sanctification, brings about growth, brings about righteousness, holiness, all of those things that Paul writes to Timothy, that it teaches us, corrects us, reproves us, trains us, equips us. People like Matthew Cordy and others who are professing Christians who adopt the language of Satan and say, has God really said? They aren't looking to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. You know, he he talks about it in in this article that you know the the Old Testament. Well, you know, it's used to say that slavery is okay. It's it's used to say that women cannot be in ministry, etc. And and it it reveals that his intention for the Christian church is social justice minded it is worldly minded it is what can i do in this life minded as opposed to eternity on our hearts 
The word of God equips us, changes us, and makes us like Jesus Christ so that when we stand before God, already redeemed, not because we've earned anything, but because of the grace and mercy of God, we are redeemed and made righteous before him. We enter in and we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Christ and he gives us his word that we might do the works that he has set forth. That we might be conformed to his image. And then from that, we're doing the things in this world that we are called to, not for ourselves, but for Christ. But that's not what the folks over at Spectrum would have you believe about the Word of God. Therefore, it's your personal interpretation, your personal belief system, your version of what you think God is. That's called idolatry. The Word of God is what conforms us to God's mind. As uh, uh, and I forget who says that, that we think God's thoughts after him. I love what Psalm 19, 7 through 11 says. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Where do we get all these things? From his revealed word. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. They are more to be desired, are they, than gold, even much fine gold. Rich, can you imagine the, you know, going to a group of CRT, social justice-minded people who want Christian churches to say, you need to be about a Marxist socialist agenda where everybody gets stuff, where everybody gets position and authority and power. And you come in and you say, let me present this to you. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. More desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. That the rules of the Lord are true, and those rules are to be desired more than what? Gold. Sweeter also than honey. And drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. And keeping and in keeping them, there is great reward. The psalmist clearly shows that it is the word of God that has much more value in the life of a believer than even the finest gold and uh, foods and uh, things that we can obtain in this life. And our greatest reward is in keeping the law of God. Now, how on earth, if we cannot look to the word of God as being inerrant, infallible, inspired, and sufficient, how can we possibly receive any reward if there's nothing about it that we can be sure of? The psalmist knew exactly what he was talking about when he said, this is what the word of God does. It revives you. It makes you wise. It rejoices your heart. It enlightens your eyes. It does all of this. And you are rewarded, not in the things of this world, but in being conformed to the image of God. Rich, the idea that we can 
decide for ourselves what is what is maybe God's word and maybe not God's word. That, well, we need this on top of it. Or, well, that sounds awfully mean and I don't think that's how we should see God. If that's the case, then the psalmist is dead wrong. Absolutely dead wrong. There's nothing about the Bible that's valuable. And if that's the case, then you better go for all the gold and all the honey in the world because there's no reward because you can't trust it. Am I wrong? No, you're absolutely right. And like I said earlier, either all the Bible is true or none of it's true because we don't have it within ourselves to, to look into the mind of God and say, oh, okay, I see that you meant to say that you meant this, but somebody wrote that. Yeah. Um, we're, we're not a God, and we're not the God. And if the Bible's not true, there's been an awful lot of men and women die over the centuries for that word, and a lot of wasted paper and a lot of dead trees now, mm-hmm. and wasted trees and wasted books and everything else. Now, granted, I understand there's a lot of false religions that print and everything else, but my point is, if we cannot come to the Word of God with the faith like a small child like jesus said and know and believe and trust that the word of god is so how can we know that we're actually saved how can we know anything without the word of god being true there is no absolute moral standard in this world that man is left to his own devices and guess what this is what the evolutionists and scientists teach that we're no better than animals and on some scale, if the Bible's not true, basically we're no better off than a bunch of cockroaches scurrying around trying to find a meal and live for our best life now And because tonight or tomorrow we may die and that's the end of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just like you said, and I forget how it's worded, you know, um, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Mm-hmm. If that's all there is, if the Bible's not true, then that's all we have is to live for this moment and live for now. Amen. And sadly, that's the way the world lives. They live for now because they don't know and understand that they will live forever. The only question is, will they live in an eternity and glory with Christ in heaven, or will they be living in an, in an eternity, paying the cost for their sin while they were on earth? I mean, it just comes down to that. It's that simple. Amen. You know, the funny thing I find about those who would cast doubt on the, uh, the purity of the Word of God. It's inerrancy, it's infallibility, it's inspiration, it's sufficiency. Is they never drift closer to holiness with God. That's the interesting thing I've, ever, I've always seen. It was just a, a conversation I saw earlier this week in, uh, evolve... Um, with a, a good friend of ours, uh, Nathaniel Jolly, he's in a discussion with a person who purports to be a woman pastor. By the way, Scripture says there's no such thing. You have, you know, you are taking a role upon yourself that is not yours. And by the way, there's a lot of men who should never use that pastor title either. Different topic. Um, but in that discussion, here's a person who says she loves Jesus. She wants to preach about Jesus to people. And her statement to Nathaniel is, the Holy Spirit is not a man. He's a spirit. That's why it's in the name Holy Spirit. I'm paraphrasing, of course. 
Now, obviously, God is spirit. God is not, except for the fact that Christ in his humanity, which he still retains as he is in heaven, God himself is spirit. He doesn't have a body as we would have a body, you and I, rich. But God exclusively, throughout the course of Scripture, consistently, constantly, reveals himself in the masculine. Why? Because there is a whole host of theology that goes with that. It's consistent with his nature, his revelation of himself, what that means for things like his authority, his position, submission, all of these things. I'm not going to get into the submission debate. Oh my goodness, that erupted again. Uh, <laughs> we won't get into that. But the point is, is that God purposefully reveals himself as masculine. There is a specific reason for that. And yet this individual gets into this argument. Why? Not because she wants to have a finer discussion about the theological nature of who, than of who God is. And to, and to say, yes, God reveals himself in the masculine throughout scripture. We recognize, of course, he's spirit and therefore he doesn't have the appendages of a man. But, and gets into that discussion. No, this is a person who wants to defend her position that is anti-biblical. That she herself cannot take the role of pastor. That is the issue that I see when a, when you see in conversations like what Nathaniel Jolly was involved in, like this article from Spectrum. They are not arguing for a closer walk in righteousness and holiness to Jesus Christ. They never call for that. It is always a drifting away from the Word of God, a drifting to the, the, the desires and the heart of man in this world, a conformity to man as he is here, not a conformity to Christ as he, as he rules and reigns from heaven. So that's why, I, Rich, when I see these arguments, and, and we got to wrap things up here. We're, you know, uh, we're um, an hour and 20 minutes in. Um, when I see this and I see these discussions and we... And, Christians, you need to not be afraid of this, okay? You see, I see it all the time. Oh, some Christian you are, you don't want to do this for people. You don't want that for people. I thought you were the loving people. Oh, well, you know, funny because the Word of God says Romans 13 or the Word of God says, you know, to take care of the widow and the, and the orphan. You don't want to do that. They don't know the first thing about the Word of God. They found the hot button topics, they found the bullet points, and they're echoing, they're basically pulling out from their own echo chamber, trying to tell you how to live as a Christian. You have the entirety of God's word from Genesis to Revelation. Study it in context, day in and day out. And if you fail to do it today, Tomorrow, repent and, and study it, right? Because we are called to study his word so that we can be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Exactly what uh, Paul said to Timothy, that we are to be taught, reproved, corrected, trained, and equipped. So we are to conform ourselves. Do not fear people who know nothing of the word of God 
and who have, like Matthew Cordy in this article, like the, 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 the woman who calls herself a pastor, and like so many others, they've come in with a predetermined conclusion. Well, this can't be what the Word of God actually means. This can't be what the Bible actually says. This can't be what God is like. They've decided for themselves. They've created an idol in their heart. Do not fear this. Stand firmly on the Word of God. You will be equipped. Desire it more than the things of this world. Desire it more than gold or honey dripping from the honeycomb. It will be a lamp shining in a dark place. That is why I just, I see these arguments. I see them unfold on the internet. I see them come from the politicians who abuse God's word when they're on television so they can shove a, 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 a Marxist agenda down the throats of Americans. My word Nancy Pelosi, AOC, and all these others who will stand before God for the idle words that they've spoken, the blasphemies that they've uttered. So that they could shove... And by the way, that counts for Republicans too. There's been plenty of those who have abused God's word for their own, uh, their own financial or positional gain. Anybody who does that needs to repent. Don't fear this. Don't fear the person who says, well, you're not a real Christian. They don't know what a real Christian is. They reject the word of God. They utterly reject it. I like what Spurgeon says. It is, not, it is God's word, not our comment on God's word that saves souls. Souls are slain by the sword, not by the scabbard, nor by the tassels which adorn the hilt of it. If God's word be brought forward in its native simplicity, no one can stand against it. We're the scabbard. We're the tassels. We're the tiny little decoration on there. It is God's word that is the sword. It's what saves souls and it's what edifies and strengthens souls. Do not fear the false teacher. Do not fear the progressivist so-called Christian. Do not fear the person who says, I'm a Christian, but study the word of God. Conform yourself to it. It is everything you need for life and godliness. Rich, anything to say before we let everybody go this week? Well, that was very well put, brother. Um, and when you do come face-to-face -face with some of these individuals, just remember the best thing you could do is to proclaim to them the biblical way of salvation and then turn and beg Christ to grant them the gift of forgiveness because that is the only hope they have and that is the only hope they need. And it is our one of our duties and jobs, and I call it our blessed responsibility, is to proclaim the way of salvation and to pray for souls to be saved, especially souls of those who persecute, revile, or despise us. We should be praying that the Lord grant them salvation. Even our leaders that we may not agree with, we may not like, we know that they are walking as enemies of the Lord. We need to pray for their salvation as well, as well as the salvation of our friends and family. 
And that is one point I think we sadly, sadly overlook, even among biblical Christians. We neglect to proclaim the biblical way of salvation. And I think if we turn back and focus more on that than trying to win these worldly arguments, the entire world would be far better off, and we would be doing and thinking on things of the kingdom of the Lord and not be as concerned about trying to trying to change the status quo of the current political climate of our nation. So in closing, what I would encourage is whatever you do this week, at least once a day make it a point to proclaim the way of salvation to someone you come in contact with, whether online or leave a tract or hand out a tract or have a conversation. But put it at the forefront of your mind and ask the Lord to grant you the desire to proclaim his way of salvation because someone proclaimed it to you and the Lord used that message to grant you salvation and we're not only commanded to do it, but if we truly love our neighbor, the most loving thing we can ever do is to proclaim the way of salvation to either a friend, family member, or to a stranger. So try to think about that and make it a point to do that at least once a day over the coming week. Amen. Amen. Well, folks, uh, just by way of reminder, this is not an apologetic for you to go out and say, here's all the Bible verses that prove this is the Word of God. Like my brother said, preach the gospel. It is, as, as Spurgeon said, that is the sword. That is by which souls are slain, that people are redeemed. Don't spend your time trying to make an apologetic to say, this is why we think the word of God is reliable or it's infallible. That's, that's not the argument. That person needs Christ. But for you, for you the Christian, this is the reminder. This is, this is where your joy can be found. This is where the peace and the strength to stand in the midst of opposition and to hold tightly to Christ in the storms comes from, from his revealed word. So when you hear these attacks upon the word of God, do not fret. Trust them. Trust them. God's word will accomplish that which he purposes it for. It will succeed. And it will conform you to the image of Christ. And it will slay the sinner and redeem him. We don't get into these... We don't need to get into fights about the infallibility of the Word of God. It is infallible. Know that. Be strengthened by that. And preach it and share it with others. Thank you for being with us this week. This is always such a joy. We are always so grateful to have you guys tuning in and listening. If you have questions, thoughts, concerns, show ideas, voiceofreasonradio at gmail.com or go to slavesofthekingcom and get a hold of us that way. A bunch of you talk to us via the um, various social media platforms. We're on. By all means, we would love to hear from you. Um, let us know if this episode helps you. Because I'd like to think this does. We need to hear this. We need to be reminded of this. So if this episode has helped you at all, let us know. 
Now, for things as we continue to go forward in the future, we want to hear from you. We want to hear about the topics that are important to you, and we'll do our best to get into them. Now, remember, we're not <laughs> we're not scholars. So if you come at me with like that, hey, what about the eternal you know subordination debate? Dude, I'm not that smart. Okay, <laughs> I I can grasp some of the comps, some of the discussions, but let's let's. Or what about you know uh, they had the the book about you know the natural the, the the failure of natural theology, dude. Big brains, okay? We're not big brains. Don't, go talk to the big brains about that. Yeah. You know? But for the things that you know we talk about, for how we can hopefully strengthen you and help you. Um, and I'm not making light of those other topics, but they're extremely important. They're just outside of our scope. Um, if there's a way that we can cover a topic that's helpful to you, we'd love to hear from you. Um, go to the website, slavetothekeng.com. Drop us a line. Um, if you want to help continue to put the program on the air and keep it running, there's the Patreon link there. Um, if you want to interact with us more, you can get on social media and find us. Okay, Like I said, you can go onto the Slaves of the King website and get a hold of us that way. We love having that interaction with you guys. Uh, we love to know that this is having some impact. We don't do that for our own ego purposes. We just we just want to know that you guys are we're we're being of some kind of help. And then finally, um, oh, I just lost my train of thought. Oh no, I hate when I do that. Um, I just want to thank you all for being part of this. You know, it's it's really been a blessing, and we we are grateful to continue to try to put this out as much as we can. So thank you for being with us this week. Thank you for continuing to uh, you know, just be a part of our family. And um, if there's anything we can do to continue to make this program beneficial to you, we'd love to know about it. God bless you guys. Good night. Whatever you do this week, do it for the glory of God. And as my brother says, preach the gospel to somebody, at least one person this week. One. Find somebody to share the gospel with. God bless you guys. Good night. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.